Father in heaven, Lord, thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy. We're thankful to be here tonight to study your word again. And Lord, we pray that you will rain down your Holy Spirit upon us, upon this place, and upon each and every one of us as we open up your word. Holy Spirit, please open up our understanding and give us insight into your word. And I also pray that Jesus, Jesus will be lifted up tonight in our study. In his name we pray it. Amen. Okay. Well, tonight we're going to look at the Messiah and the judgment. The Messiah and the judgment. But let's look again at the four principles of true Bible interpretation. Again, repetition deepens the impression. Four principles of true Bible interpretation. The first one is God is what, everybody? God is love. First John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. I pray that you've been seeing that as we've been going through our nightly topics together and in the Word. Again, this Word here, this Bible, is God's love letter to us. And uh, what a love letter it is. And God loves us very much, folks. And I hope and pray that you um, not only know that, but experience that on a daily basis, the love of God. Um, and then number two, the whole Bible is to be our, is to be our guide. The whole Bible is to be our guide. Psalm 119, 105 tells us, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so our guide is to be the word of God. It is the light um, on our pathway. And then, of course, number three is Bible cannot contradict itself. The Bible cannot contradict itself. And so we've been seeing the consistency and the accuracy of Scripture. And then, of course, number four, last but not least, we are to always read everything in what, everybody? In context. It's important to read in context. So let's take a look tonight at the Messiah and the judgment. The Messiah and the judgment. If you will look with me on the inside cover of your study guide this evening, it says here, in recent times, courtroom dramas have become popular features on televised television news programs. Those accused of notorious, even grisly offenses often find their cases in court proceedings the subject of moment-by-moment -moment media coverage. Society's fascination with crime and punishment has become a fixture of contemporary life. The Bible speaks of a day in court that none can evade or avoid. What does the Bible say about this judgment? When will it happen? Who is in charge? And will you be found guilty or innocent before God? Keep reading. God's word offers answers that are filled with hope. Amen. And I don't want to put anyone on the spot here, but um, I know that I've had a few court dates in my <laughs> My, in my lifetime. Um, but I praise God that what we're going to discover here tonight is the good news is we have nothing to fear of the judgment, folks. You know why? Because the, the, the judge is on our side. Would you say amen? Yes. The judge is for us, and the judgment is for us, and we're going to discover this in, in Scripture tonight. It's important for us to see this, that we really have nothing to fear of the judgment, but why is there a judgment? Please notice question number one. How many people will face the judgment? How many people will face the judgment? 
the Apostle Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, the Bible says, We must, how many? All appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So we must all appear, the Bible says, before the judgment seat of Christ. Every person will face the judgment and answer for the decisions made in this life. As serious as this is, there is no need to be afraid of this event. God's word reveals that if you put your trust in Jesus, you can look forward to the judgment with confidence. Would you say amen? amen. So we've got to put our trust in Jesus. And we can look forward to the judgment with confidence. Friends, we can look forward to the judgment with confidence. Please notice question number two. Will the judgment take place prior to the second coming of Jesus? Will the judgment take place prior to the second coming of Jesus? Revelation 22 verse 12 says this, Behold, and this is Jesus, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my what? And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So that word there, reward, is with me, Jesus says. Jesus will come with his reward, and a reward must first be determined before it can be given. Be given. Therefore, there is a time prior to Christ's return when the judgment will take place. This judgment will reveal who is saved and who is lost. As with any courtroom, there will be an investigation of the evidence followed by a verdict and a sentence. For the believer in Jesus, the sentence or reward is eternity with our friend and Savior. So according to that verse, it says here that Christ says, I, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone um, as his work, or everyone according to his work. And so the Bible here is pretty plain. It's clear that there must be a judgment that takes place beforehand, right, before the second coming of Jesus, in order for Jesus to give out or to mete out rewards. Now, let me just share with you that that word there, investigation, it's a phase of the judgment that's taking place, and all of you who know law or have been involved with law know that in order to um, build a case against someone, you must do an investigation and you must, you must uh, gather evidence. Isn't that correct? And gather evidence. And so that same, that same principle is also, actually we get it from, from heaven. We get it from God's government, all right? Much of our civil laws are based upon the Word of God. Now, it may apply differently in some ways here in our country, but there are many principles that remain the same. Now, here's something I want to share with you because it's important for us to see that this is something that is not just found over there in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 8. This principle of an investigation is consistent throughout all of Scripture. I'll give you the first one that we find that's mentioned, and I'll just reference some of these. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 2, God warns our first parents, right, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, because in the day that you eat thereof, you're going to surely what? You're going to surely die. Well, we know that we have the sad story of that fall in Genesis chapter 3. However, 
However, after both Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, the Bible says that God now came down and walking in the cool of the day, asked the question, where are you? Right? To which Adam responded and said, we heard thy voice in the garden and we hid because we were naked and we were afraid. Now, let me just share with you that right there, there's a principle of an investigation because God now, something has gone wrong on this planet. Sin now has found its way onto this planet and now God comes down himself and now he is making an investigation. And the question, where are you, was not in terms of just location or locale or where are you and Adam was, you know, and Eve were hiding somewhere. He was asking basically, where are you in relationship with me? Is everything still fine? I mean, not that God didn't know. And then when you even look at the questioning that God asked, there's an investigation going on because God is already in the process of trying to reconcile them to himself. Do you see that? So there's an investigation taking place right then and there. Another story that we have is found over there in Genesis chapter 12, um, chapter 12, where we have the building of the Tower of Babel. And what did God say? God said, let us go down and see what is happening. That's an investigation. <laughs> God himself had to come down and determine. And by the way, did you notice that in both of these instances that there was judgment? God pronounced judgment upon the serpent. He also told Adam and Eve that because you have sinned, what? You're, you're, you're going to be expelled, but you're also going to be, he told Adam that in the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to work hard for your bread. And then he told Eve, because of what you've done, now childbirth is going to be what? Yeah. So these, these, are, these are judgments, folks. Consequences of their choices. God came down and did an investigation. What did he do over there with the Tower of Babel? He confounded their what? Their languages, and they were scattered all throughout the earth. Now, Here's another one. Genesis chapter 19. We have the story of Solomon and Gomorrah. First of all, if you read it, three strangers show up at, at, uh, at Abraham's tent, right? And Abraham serves them. And then what happens is they also tell Abraham that Sarah is going to have a son. She laughs. To which one of the strangers replied, why did Sarah laugh? Is there anything too hard for God? Let me ask you, is there anything too hard for God? Absolutely not. But now after they're done eating, the Bible says that all three rose up, and now they make their way down to the cities of the plain. Two of them continue on down, and one stays behind to talk with Adam. I mean, not Adam, but Abraham. Right? And then he says, shall... I reveal that what I'm going to do to my friend Abraham. And then Abraham said, now, Lord, shall the judge of all the earth judge righteously? Because the Lord said, I'm going down to Solomon and Gomorrah to see if the cry that has come up to heaven, there's an investigation going on. And what happens is, listen, folks, what happens is, 
Abraham, Abraham then goes into intercession mode. Yeah, he starts bargaining with God. He says, Lord, are you going to destroy the righteous also with the wicked? He said, what if there are 50 men in Enumclaw that are righteous? The Lord said, well, I will, not, I will spare the whole place for their sake. He went 45, 40, 35, 30, 25, 20. And then he said, Lord, please don't be angry with me. I'm just going to ask you this one last request. If there are 10 righteous people in all of Enumclaw, will you spare the place? And God said, for their sake, I'll spare it. Sadly, though, the two angels went down to investigate. They couldn't even find 10. Isn't that right? I mean, who was saved? I mean, four were taken by the hand out of the, sit, out of, by the, hands out of the city, and you know what happened to the wife. Yeah, she turned and, you know, her heart was still in the city, and she turned to a pillar of salt. So God came down and did an investigation, and judgment fell. So what, what, I, what I'm trying to share with you is that this is not a concept that is only found in the book of Daniel. It's a concept that is consistent throughout all of Scripture. There's others, <laughs> but for the sake of time, I'm just going to um, let you enjoy that, and then hopefully you'll go home and be like, man, let me see if there's any other stories where God came down and did an investigation, because there are. Um, By the way, the purpose of the investigative judgment or an investigation is to determine who has genuinely and truly accepted what Christ has done for them. You know that? Here's why. Because there are so many people who profess that they have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior but their lives say something different altogether. Their hearts are not with the Lord. And so let me, let me just put it to you this way. Since we have a lot of beautiful evergreens in this state, and when winter comes, winter, the, win the blast of winter comes, they all retain their foliage. They all retain, you know, their needles. So basically they all look the same. But with the other trees, though, it's a different story. When the winter blasts come, they lose their what? They lose their leaves and, 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 and flowers or whatever you have on these trees. And what God is trying to say is that there are so many people who profess to be Christians, who profess to belong to the Lord, and only God can read the heart. Would you say amen for that? Only God can read the heart. But God is able to determine who it is that has genuinely accepted the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because anybody can profess anything, but only God can tell. That's why we can have a church filled with people, and yet you won't even be able to tell by looking at people who really is genuinely belonging to Christ and accepting them, and who doesn't. And God determines that. And God looks at the heart. And so, let's take a closer look at this. Jesus will come with his reward, and a reward must first be determined before it can be given. Therefore, there's time prior to Christ's return when the judgment will take place. This judgment will reveal who is saved and who is lost. As with any courtroom, there will be an investigation of the evidence, followed by a verdict and a sentence. For the believer in Jesus, the sentence or reward is, in, is eternity with our friend and Savior. And by the way, 
what I'm just mentioning to you as well, um, that's why over there in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 and 22, it says that not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, who calls Jesus Lord? The Hindus? No. The Buddhists? No. Christians. And so that's speaking to the Christians. So not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom. And please notice question number three. How did the prophet Daniel describe the judgment? How did the prophet Daniel describe the judgment? Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, the Bible says this. I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. The Ancient of Days was seated. The what? The court was seated and what else? The books were opened. Okay? So Daniel here sees a judgment scene. Daniel in vision, vision saw the judgment in heaven's sanctuary. God sat on his throne. The court was seated. Million, millions of angels were present. The books were opened for investigation, and the judgment began. Daniel portrays this scene as a spectacular event. And if you read the context of Daniel chapter 7, you'll see that there's a meeting there between the Ancient of Days and, the son, and one that looked like the Son of Man or the Son of Man. So we can deduce from there that the Ancient of Days is none other than God the Father, and the Son of Man obviously is Jesus Christ, because that's the title that he's given. Okay, so that's the scene that we have in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Please notice question number 4. What is the purpose of the judgment? What is the purpose of the judgment? Daniel chapter 7, verse 18, the Bible says this. The saints of the Most High shall receive the what? Oh, are you ready to receive the kingdom? <laughs> oh, folks, we're headed, for, we're, headed for, we're headed for the throne of the universe. Would you say amen? Great things. You know, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, it says, um, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in with him and, have, and will sup with him and he with me. Then it says, To him that overcometh. Listen to this, folks. And this is, this is beautiful. You know why? Because if you read the seven churches, the seventh church seems to be the most, I mean, seems to be the worst one. Christ has absolutely nothing good to say about it. It's lukewarm. It believes that it's in need of nothing. It's rich and has all this stuff, and it doesn't even realize its true condition. And yet, Christ says to this church that if to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me on my throne, even as I am set down with my father on his throne. Oh, man, that's exciting to me. I'm ready to sit on the throne with Jesus. Would you say amen? Surely, I mean, I don't know what that throne's going to look like. Maybe it's just one big seat with all of us sitting together. Whatever the, whatever the case may be. But God is saying to him that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me on that throne? Wow, on my throne. You know, there's so many people that are, are, um, have aspirations and ambitions for, you know, I once heard my daughter say, you know, uh, man, daddy, I... Maybe someday I can run for president. <laughs> I said, that's a lofty goal. That's a lofty goal. That's, that's, quite, that's pretty ambitious. And, you know, and I never, I never want to short-circuit my, my daughter's dreams. But I, you know, one thing I know is I may not become the president of the United States. I may not become the mayor or the governor of Seattle. But I tell you what, I'm headed for the throne of the universe. And I'd rather be sitting with Jesus on that throne than any 
any position here on earth. That's what Christ has promised to us, folks. We're going to receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. That's exciting to me. When you think about what sin has done and what sin has caused here on this planet, that God is going to elevate, elevate us to sit with him on his throne, that's just an amazing, amazing um, picture right there. As people have lived on the earth, they have either accepted or rejected Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The judgment reveals and ratifies the decisions that have been made for or against Jesus. The saved will be found to have yielded their lives to him, while the lost will be found to have chosen against surrender to Christ. At the completion of this judgment, none will doubt God's integrity, justice, or love. Heaven's response to God's judgment is, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of saints, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Isn't that beautiful? Now, do you like that? You know what I love about that, Scott? The last part, it says, and your judgments have been manifested. That means that your judgments, God is going to be transparent with us. God's going to reveal to us his judgments. And when we look over the judgments of God, we're going to determine for ourselves that God is indeed just and true and that he has meted out justice and that he has been fair. Would you say amen? I mean, he's been merciful, but he's also been fair. You know, one of the toughest things, one of the things that the devil hates, and I believe that this is where, this is where the devil, um, this is where the devil mis misstepped is when he actually thought, you know, if I can, if I can somehow get these, this one-third of the angels to join me, and then eventually if I can get the human family to join me, God is going to be either or, but he can't be both. Either he'll be merciful, <laughs> and there'll be no justice, or he'll be, just, he'll be just, but no mercy. And so what drives the devil absolutely nuts is that God is both merciful and just. You see that? Because if God would have went to either extreme and he was just merciful, then Satan would have said, oh, see, now you're, excuse, you're excusing and palliating sin. And God said, no, no, wait a minute. I'm also just now. But now if he was just just and meeting out justice, the devil would have been, see, I knew he was a tyrant all along. I knew that he was vindictive. I knew that he was this type of God. And so the argument of Satan was very, very subtle. And yet God, God in this infinite wisdom and in his great love and because of who he is. That's why we go back to principle number one. God is what, everybody? God is love. He was able to be merciful and at the same time just. How so? Well, because the law demanded blood and life, right? Because of sin. God said, okay, now there's a problem. He said, but you know what? I'm going to step up and handle the problem myself. Amen? Aren't you thankful? Man, we, I'm just praising God that he didn't leave us down here to deal with our own mess. He stepped into our world. He stepped into this mess. And in this story, the hero truly dies for the villains. You ever thought about that? I mean, we're the villains in this story. And yet the hero comes and dies for us. 
Wow. What a God we serve. The way that he was able to meet the demands of the law is because he sent his only begotten son Jesus to die on the cross for us and pay the penalty for our sins. And then now, by because, now because we can now accept and receive Jesus Christ by faith as our Lord and Savior and what he has done for us, God is merciful and the justifier of those who accept salvation through Jesus Christ. Would you say amen? That's why he's merciful and just. Oh, beloved, we have nothing to fear of the judgment as long as we have Jesus. Question number five, on what basis will people be judged? On what basis will people be judged? Please notice what it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14, the wise man Solomon writes this. And if you go further up, it's even, it's even better, but it says here, God will bring every what, everybody? Every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or what? Evil. Whether good or evil. And then please notice what it says in James chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. By the way, it says every, every work, um, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So that, that God is even talking there about our thoughts, our motives, our intentions, all of it. Now, James chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, notice what James writes. Whoever shall keep the whole what? Law, and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, and this is why context is important, do not commit what, everybody? Adultery. He also said, do not commit, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so do as those who will be judged by the law of what? Liberty. Liberty. Now, folks, let me just share something with you. The context, what law is that speaking of? Take commandments. Thank you. You know, that's one of the things. Um, let me just share. Have you guys noticed something? That there's an interesting... There's an interesting um, connection with all the verses that we've been reading so far. Have you guys picked up on when Jesus comes in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, he says that I will give every man according to his work. Here it says that we will be what? Ecclesiastes says that we will be every, God will bring every work into judgment. Have you guys noticed that? Let me ask you something. If we're not saved by works, then why are we judged by them? You ever thought about that? Say, say, say again, Larry. Proof is in the pudding. We're not, the reason why Christ, the, word, the words are like that is not because we're saved by works, Darren. We're saved by works, Brett. The reason why that's put there like that is because that is evidence. That is evidence. Those are the fruit of a relationship with Christ and receiving him as your personal Lord and Savior and as a result of having Christ dwelling in you, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, it says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And so if we have Christ dwelling in us, and Christ comes, and now he's going to give us according to our works, who is it whose works are being done in us? Christ. That's why over there, you know, this is amazing. That's why over there in Matthew chapter 25, 
<laughs> Matthew chapter 25, when the king has to split up the goats and the, and the, and the sheep, this is what he says. He says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me water. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you came to visit me. And then those, then he said, then, then he said, you, and whatever, whatsoever you have done unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Do you remember how the righteous responded to that? Yeah, they were like, it was almost as if they were oblivious of that. You see, because they're not caught up in their works. Their motives are so pure because they have Christ dwelling in them that it's a natural fruit of what is taking place in their lives as a result of Christ dwelling in them. So when you're out there feeding the homeless and you're out there ministering to people and when you're receiving people into your home, not just your friends, but I'm talking about people from the street, people that come out from different walks of life and you take them home and have lunch with them, Jesus says that whatsoever you have done unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it to me. You see, that actually answers the question of the judgment. Because what, what is being judged there also? What have you done? What have you done in the person of the poor and the needy? You know what pure and undefiled religion is according to James chapter 1 verse 27? <laughs> pure and undefiled religion, beloved, is it says when we, when we help the widows and we help the orphans, that's what James says is pure and undefiled religion. Basically saying, it's, it's, not just, it's not just religious activity. It's when we are engaged in helping people. Beloved, and I may be preaching to the choir here, and probably I am. But that's going to be the challenge for the church moving forward in this community and every community. Because God's about to do some things that's going to make our heads spin. What are we going to do when somebody walks up in here and, I mean, maybe looks like a wild man or looks crazy? Doesn't, doesn't dress like we do, doesn't eat what we eat. What are we going to do if a couple of the same sex walks in holding hands and they want to come and worship with us? Well, some people will just flip out. Pastor, you see, what are we going to do? What do you mean what you're going to do? You invite them in. Have them come in with you, sit down in the pews, and sit right next to them, and make them feel welcome. And if the Holy Spirit moves upon you, invite them home, or bring them for a fellowship meal. Now, what I'm, please don't misunderstand, folks. Please do not misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we condone or we compromise. What I'm saying is that whoever comes through these doors, we ought to have the spirit and the love of Christ for everyone that comes through our church doors. Would you say amen? Mm -hmm. 
sometimes, you know, it's just, it's just, God wants, God is preparing his church. He's preparing people because there are going to be folks that come in and, uh, you know, you know, I'm speaking the truth, you know, some, I mean, man, we really, really, we really, really, really need help. There's just some folks, you know, even in, even you can be in a church for years with somebody and that person still drives you nuts. But have you ever taken into consideration that that's the reason why God put them right next to you? Is to build your character? That's why they sit on the same board with you? That's why, you know, they're, they're, they're always there with you? And sometimes when, when they call you, even their voice is irritating and annoying to you. But these are the things that we need to surrender to Christ. If, Christ, if, Christ, if, if, if what Christ prayed for in John 17 about the unity that he prayed for, the being one, beloved, I want to share with you that these are the types of things that the investigative judgment is looking at. It's not so much what we do on the outside or externally, but what's really going on inside. Are we harboring resentment, anger, jealousy? So I'm thankful for your pastor. <laughs> There's no spirit of competition between the two of us. Not at all. You know, if he got up and he preached this, I'd be, I'd be just as happy and supportive. Or any one of you. Please notice the standard and the judgment is the law of God. Is what, everybody? The law of God. Our thoughts and actions are measured against the holy standard of God's law. Since all have sinned, how can a just God declare a guilty person to be not guilty? The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 All who have sinned are guilty and deserve death. But Jesus took the sentence and died in the place of the sinner. Since he is the one who was sinned against, he is the only one who can take the punishment for sin on behalf of the guilty. Please notice there are two things in your lesson study here. When we confess our sins, two things take place. We are declared not what, everybody? Not guilty. And then we are declared what? Righteous. Fancy word for that is justification. <laughs> right? And then God sets out. Not only does he declare us to be righteous, but then he sets out to make that a reality. Yeah, that's right. That's right, Robin. Praise God for that. Would you say amen? Jesus forgives us according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1, 7. His grace then enables us to be cleansed of sin through that same power. 1 John 1, 7 and 9. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. At the end of time, those whose names are found written in this book will be saved. In the judgment, Jesus promises his followers, those who experience his forgiving and overcoming power, that he would not blot their names out of the book of life. Rather, the record of their sins will be blotted out. Would you say amen? So this is what this whole investigation is all about. This is what the judgment is all about, folks. God, Jesus, all of our names here, everyone in this room, our names are written in the book of life. Would you say amen? Praise be to God. But now, the investigation now is going to determine whether or not God is going to either, and he doesn't want to do this, according to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, I've quoted this so many times, that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so what, does happen, what happens is that God doesn't want anyone to perish, and he wants our names to remain in the book of life. 
but we have a choice in the matter. And if we choose not to have Christ remain as our Savior and Lord, guess what, folks? Our name will be removed from the book of life. But that's not what God wants to remove. What God wants to remove, he wants to remove and blot out our sins. Would you say amen? That's what he wants to take out. So we can, eat, we can decide, we can choose, surely, whether to have our name remain or our sins remain. Yeah, and why? You know, you think about that, Larry, that's really not that, that's really not that hard of a choice. I mean, you think about, I mean, think about just you personally. I'm thinking about myself personally. Man, I know what sin has caused in my own personal life. The misery, I mean, the heartache, the heartbreak, the pain. I know all of that. Now, why on earth? And now, I, know, I know it's a daily, constant struggle and wrestle according to Romans chapter 7. But listen, folks, listen. That is nothing compared to what God is offering and the alternative and the option that he gives us through Jesus Christ. Would you say amen? Man, it's, I mean, weigh that out. The last few funerals that we've been involved in, you know, my cousin who's, uh, who's in seminary right now in, um, in Michigan and is on his way to becoming a pastor as well. He shared at our nephew's funeral. And I said, wow. He read, he read Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And, and I remember just sh- what he shared. He said, you know, when you think about what God is offering, he said, think about if, you, if, if another company that was more prestigious, that was, that was bigger and had more, more money, and they were offering you more money, and they were offering you the position of your dreams, I mean, what you are actually passionate and what you love to do, he said only a fool would turn that down. And remain where they are. And yet, God is offering us something greater than what we currently have. And yet, there's so many people who still choose the world. You know what, folks? I'm going to share with you. You choose the world, you lose both. You lose heaven and the world. You choose God, you get it all. (laughs) Amen? Oh, wow. That's why over there in Matthew chapter 5, I believe it's verse 5, it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the what? Inherit the earth. So let's move on. That's question number five. Um, question number six, when does the judgment begin? When does the judgment begin? For 2,300 days, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be what, everybody? Cleansed, all right? And all of you know this language and what this text is speaking about. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 20 through 22, the angel Gabriel appears to Daniel, the same angel seen in the vision of chapter 8. At the beginning, Daniel 9, 21, Gabriel provides the starting date of the judgment when he tells Daniel about a period of 2,300 years. Gabriel then provides further details of the vision that relates specifically to Daniel's city and people, Jerusalem and the Jews. So let's go to question number 7. The sanctuary is going to be cleansed, okay? And last night we covered some of that. Uh, We know that in the earthly sanctuary that blood was 
sprinkled and that uh, a record of our sins was kept in the sanctuary, that whenever um, so an individual or brought in a, a sacrifice, that they would place their hands over that lamb. They would, they would then um, put to death that lamb, and, and uh, the priest there would also take some of that blood and sprinkle it inside the sanctuary. So the transferring of symbolically of our sins and our guilt upon the innocent victim and then the blood and then the priest takes it into into the sanctuary and sprinkles it there thereby our record of sins is kept there but there's a day of atonement which is for cleansing so let's look at question number seven what incredible prophecy reveals jesus as the messiah and um i'm going to keep on moving here daniel chapter 9 verse 24 the bible says how many weeks? Seventy. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up, vi to seal up vision and prophecy, and to do what? Anoint the most holy. Anoint the most holy. So by the way, 70 weeks are determined upon your people. We know that that's talking about that there's going to be a period of time out of the 2300 days that is cut off specifically for Daniel's people, the Jewish people. That's 70 times, by the way, and we know we can take uh, a day for a year principle, right? A day for a year that's found in Numbers chapter 14, verse 34, and also in Ezekiel, I believe, chapter 6, verse 4. So we look at a day for a year principle, or 4, verse 6. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate that. And so we look at that, and we see that it's a day for a year, and so we look at 70 years, uh, 70 weeks, that's how many days? 400 and what? 90. And so that's about, that, that comes out to 490, it says days but it, or weeks, but it's what? Years. 490 years are for his people, for the Jews. They were allotted for the Jews. God gave a 70-week time period for the nation of Israel to repent of its apostasy, during which time Jesus would come to the world as the long-awaited Messiah, as the long-awaited Messiah. Now, folks, let me just share with you that today I was out and I had the opportunity to speak. I'm not going to mention, but I had the opportunity to speak at, uh, at a different church today. And um, I, I shared some things on prophecy and from the Word of God. And do you know that these, some of, several of these pastors and parishioners came up afterwards and asked me, said, Pastor, would you mind coming sometime to give us a study and do a series on the book of Revelation? I told them I'd be happy to. Now, let me just share with you that one of the things that came up, one of the questions that came up was the question about the Antichrist and also um, this idea, this idea that, that the Antichrist is going to be someone that that's going to come to Jerusalem and the temple and all of that. And I know what they're saying, but I took them back to Daniel chapter 9 and just shared a couple of things with them from Daniel chapter 9. Do you know that their understanding of Daniel chapter 9 is that it is actually, this is, why we gotta be, this is why we have to be very careful when we study scripture, because you can take things out of context and come up with all kinds of stuff. They actually believe that Daniel chapter 9 is referring to the Antichrist. Now, who do you think, who do you think it was, would be responsible for leading people down that path? The devil. Because when you, when you read this, folks, this is speaking about not the Antichrist, it is speaking about Jesus Christ. Would you say Amen. And so that is, that is, I mean, wow, you talk about a flip. You talk about deception. That's why the devil always has a counterfeit that runs parallel with, 
God's truth in his word. And we got to be able to share these things with people and folks and help them to understand that this is not speaking about the Antichrist. This is speaking about Jesus Christ. And so let's look at question number eight. By the way, you know what I'm so thankful for, too, in that verse that I hope you see? It says that to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now, God asked the Jewish people to do that, but he would not, he would not ask them to do that in their own strength or in, in their own power. The only one that can actually accomplish all of that is none other than Jesus himself. Would you say amen? But because of their rejection of him, this is why they were not able to do what it says here in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Let's go to question number 8. In prophetic symbolism, what does a day represent? And thank you, Robin, for uh, sometimes I have, what is that, Dyslex dyslexia, whatever, yeah. Flip things around. Um, Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 6, it says, I have laid on you a day for each what? For each year. So that's, uh, that's what it says there. Um, and then we also have another text. But notice what it says here. In your study guide, it says, in Bible prophecy, a day represents a literal year. The principle is found in several places throughout the Bible, see Numbers 1434, and is validated by numerous prophecies. It would be impossible for the events of Daniel 9 to apply to a literal 490 days. The 70 weeks, not 490 days, represents 490 literal years. So let's go to question number nine, okay? What was the starting point for this time period for the Jews? Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the what? Command to restore and build Jerusalem unto who? Until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. So the starting point of this prophecy was a command allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their city. This decree was found in Ezra, chapter 7, verses 11 through 26, was made by King Artaxerxes in the seventh year of his reign in 457 B.C. So our starting point is in 457 B.C. Now, why is that so important? There were other, there were other um, commands that were issued as well, but this one was mo the most comprehensive, okay? And it included them going back, and they were also given support by the by the Persian government in restoring and rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple. So again, the starting point, and I'm trying to emphasize this for my viewers also on, on Facebook Live, because I have friends who are watching. The starting point was 457 BC. Okay? And now let's go to question number 10. What would happen at the end of the first 69 weeks? Please notice what it says in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. Until who? Messiah, the prince. Until Messiah, the prince. 69 weeks comes out to 483 days or what, everybody? Years. 483 years. So I want us to take a look at this. Daniel was, was told that the Messiah, Jesus, would come 69 weeks after the command to rebuild Jerusalem. That command was given in 457 B.C. So 69 weeks, 483 literal years, brings us to the year A.D. 27. When calculating this, remember that there is no year zero. So we must add a year. 
According to this prophecy, the Messiah would appear in A.D. 27. Messiah means the anointed one. In A.D. 27, Jesus was what, everybody? Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River and was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 10, verse 37, 38 confirms this as well. Beginning his public ministry as the Messiah. So let me ask you a question. Is the Bible, is the Bible accurate? Can we trust God's word? Absolutely, folks. Absolutely. So Jesus, Jesus, Larry shows up right on time. Praise God. That's why, that's why, that's why I love, folks, this is why we, we there's, no, there's no doubt. There's no conjecture. There's no guessing. Jesus is who he claims to be. He is the, he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one of Bible prophecy. Would you say amen? That's what the Bible says. By the way, that's also the starting point. 457 B.C. is also the starting point of the 2300 days. And so when you look at that chart there, I wish I had that chart up on screen for our viewers on Facebook to see. But it says here, and notice that there's also a detail. There's also a detail in here in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. And it doesn't say this in any of the other Gospels. But Luke chapter 3, verse 1, it says... Jesus' baptism took place in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar's reign, which history places at what year? A.D. 27. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, came right on time in A.D. 27. When Jesus announced that the time is fulfilled, Mark 1.15, he was declaring that the time prophecy of Daniel 9.25 had been fulfilled. Jesus was announcing that he was the what? Messiah. I mean, don't you guys uh, see that language and also in the Gospels where there were times where Jesus said that, you know, my time is not yet, my hour has not come. And then there's other times where he says what? That the kingdom of heaven is what? Is at hand. My hour has come. The time has come. He was referring back often to Daniel chapter 9. We also have another, we also have another um, incident where you remember when Peter said, how, how often should I forgive my, my enemies or those that, that wronged me. He said, seven times seven? What did Jesus say? Seventy. Seventy times what? Seven. That equals what, everybody? 490 times. <laughs> Is there a connection with what we're reading here? Absolutely. Because what Jesus was trying to say was, listen, I'm here right on schedule, and I bring righteousness. I bring forgiveness. I bring hope. I'm, I'm your hope. My people, that's why he cried out, when he, was, when he was looking over Jerusalem and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, how often I would have liked to gather you as a mother hand would gather her chicks under her wings, and yet you would not. And the Bible says that he, he I mean, he wept. He cried over the city because they rejected him. Folks, praise God that Jesus is who he claims to be according to the word of God. Amen? Let's go to question number 11. What was predicted to happen to the Messiah? Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be what? Cut off. But notice. But not for who? Not for himself. Who was he cut off for? For us. For you and me. Daniel predicted the death of the Messiah. Jesus would die for the sins of the world. Let's go to question number 12. What would happen in the middle of the last week of this prophecy? Remember, 
There was 483 years. There's one more week. Jesus' ministry began in 27 AD. He was crucified. We're going to discover in the midst or in the middle of the week. That's three and a half years later of that week. Please notice what would happen in the middle of the week. Last week of this prophecy, Daniel 9.27. In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to what? Sacrifice and offering. You know why? Because he's the Lamb of God, right? And so he brought an end to the sacrificial and ceremonial system. Please notice the middle of the week, seven days, represent, representing seven years in prophecy, is a year A.D. 31. Three and a half years, three and a half years after the coming of the Messiah in the autumn of A.D. 27. When Jesus died, notice this, when Jesus died, the curtain in the temple was miraculously torn from top to bottom. Mark 15, 38, indicating that the sacrificial system was now obsolete because Jesus, the true lamb, had died for the sins of the world. Would you say amen? And so an invisible hand took that curtain. And we're told that that curtain, Gary, was probably the, probably the thickness of a man's hand. And so imagine that curtain, that, that curtain being torn, ripped down from the top to the bottom. And Jesus, when he died, he brought an end to the sacrificial system. In the temple service, the Passover lamb was sacrificed once a year on a specific day and at a specific time, the afternoon of the 14th day in the Hebrew month of Nisan. Jesus was dying on the cross as the priests were preparing to kill the Passover lamb. On that dark afternoon, prophecy was fulfilled as Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. This time, prophecy demonstrates that the Bible can be trusted and that Jesus Christ is the true Messiah of Bible prophecy. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. How's your faith tonight? I pray that your faith is anchored in Jesus Christ. Question number 13, to whom did Jesus tell his disciples to first preach? Please notice, in Matthew chapter 16, or Matthew 10, rather, verses 5 and 6. Do not go into the ways of who? Of the Gentiles. And do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of who? Israel. Okay? Because again, Jesus was on a specific timetable. He was fulfilling his father's prophetic timeline. And beloved, he said, he told his disciples, do not go the way of the Gentiles. He says, go to the house of Israel. You guys recall that Phoenician woman, right, that came to Jesus and she had a daughter that was vexed with the devil. And Jesus was dealing with an issue there because the disciples still had this um, prejudice with them. They, they had this prejudice against the Gentiles and against people um, that were not Jews. And, and so... We remember when she comes up to Jesus and she falls and she's like begging Jesus, please, you know, my daughter's vexed with the devil. And Jesus said to her, well, it is not meat. It is not proper. It is not appropriate for me to give to the dogs what belongs to the children. To the house of Israel. Now, aren't you thankful that that woman was persistent <laughs> and had great faith? I love what she said. She said, truth, Lord. But even dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And what Jesus was dealing with was with the disciples' issues. 
He said, great is thy faith, go your, and the Bible tells us that her daughter was healed or was delivered. So he told him to go um, to, not to the Gentiles, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. After being anointed as the Messiah in AD 27, Jesus instructed his disciples to focus on preaching to the Jewish people. He longed for the Jewish nation to accept and present him as the Messiah to the whole world. Even after his death, Jesus told his disciples to begin their ministry at Jerusalem. That's found over there in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. He had not given up on the people of Jerusalem. There was still time for them to repent of their sin of rejecting the true Messiah. So let's go to that. What warning did Jesus give to the people of Israel? Matthew chapter 21 verse 43. Please notice what he said. Matthew 21 verse 43. The kingdom of God will be what? Taken from you. And given to a nation bearing what, everybody? Bearing the fruits of it. So Jesus was warning the Jewish people. He said, listen, because, of, because you're going to reject me, because you're rejecting me, and you are not producing the fruits, he said, I'm going to take it from you, and I'm going to give it to a people that will bear and reproduce these results in the fruits. Beloved, I want to share with you um, that even as a church, you know, we, God has blessed us with so much to share. We have a message for the world. But you know, I think sometimes we, we, we get so caught up on, and, 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 and the, the Jewish nation is a, the Jewish nation is a lesson for us. If we, get, if we get caught up with, with rituals and forms and traditions and we make certain things in the church more important and we forget about the mission of Christ, then we've missed the mark. We've missed it, folks. I'm not saying that these good things are not good things. But we, we were, there's something, there, there, there seems to be a disconnect And I believe that God is going to do something. He's going to produce a people that, you know, their, 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 their whole mind is on the mission of Christ and, and reaching out to, to people. And, I mean, this is, this, is what God has, this is what Jesus has commissioned us to do, is to take this gospel, to take this gospel, this good news that we have, and to share it. Jesus loved the people of Jerusalem. He knew the prophecy of Daniel 9, and he passionately warned them about refusing to accept the gift of salvation. Jesus declared that the great promise of a glorious future would be taken away from the Jews and given to another people. Okay, let's go to Acts. Question number 15. I'm almost done here, folks. Question number 15. By the way, so surely we're in the, we're in the last week, right? We're in the last seven years. Jesus' ministry, public ministry, began in AD 27 when he was baptized. Three and a half years later, in the middle of the week, he was what? Crucified. Not for himself, but for us. Now, how many years remain of that last week? Three and a half more. Okay? Three and a half more. Now, this is important because the gospel then continues to go out to Jerusalem and to the Jews. And notice what the Bible says in Acts chapter 15. When did the gospel really begin to go to the Gentiles. Please notice what the Bible says in Acts chapter 8, verses 2 and 4. Devout men carried Stephen to his burial. Therefore, those who were scattered went where? Everywhere. 
everywhere preaching the what? Preaching the word. By the way, we discover that this actually takes place, the stoning of Stephen. The martyrdom of Stephen takes place exactly three and a half years later, which brings to an end the last week. Let me, let me just say that to be very clear with my viewers on Facebook as well. The last week, the 70th week, by the way, it's all one whole 70 weeks consecutively. There's no gap theory. There's no 69 weeks in the past or in past history, and then all of a sudden God gaps out the 70th week for the end of time in which the Antichrist is going to show up, or there's going to be seven years of tribulation. By the way, by the way, that seven years of tribulation is not in the Bible. Again, we're here to discover what the Bible really what? What the Bible really says. So the gap theory is not biblical. These are 70 consecutive weeks or 490 years that was allotted, cut off for the Jewish nation. In the 70th week or the remaining seven years, Jesus was anointed. He was then three and a half years later crucified. And then after that, the remaining three and a half years, it marked by the, by the stoning of Stephen. And then the gospel went out to the Gentiles just as the Bible had predicted. Would you say amen? That's the Bible. I just wanted to make that clear. Let's, when Stephen was killed by the Jewish religious leaders, by the way, we know that according to that story, Saul, who later became Paul, was among them. He became the first Christian martyr. This occurred in A.D. 34, exactly 490 years after the start of the prophecy. The blessings of the gospel were now to be extended to the Gentiles as well as Jews. Israel was no longer God's exclusive nation. Today, all who accept Jesus Christ, including Jews, are considered part of God's modern Israel. Galatians 3.29 says, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Would you say amen? Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. Would you say amen? All right. Let's go to question number 16. Well, when was the earthly sanctuary cleansed? Leviticus chapter 23, verse 27, the tenth day of the seventh month shall be the day of what, everybody? Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. Leviticus 16, verse 30, on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to do what? To cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. So judgment and cleansing are synonymous. Atonement, synonymous. And animals, as animal sacrifices were offered each day, the priest took some of the blood of the sacrifices and sprinkled it inside the holy place of the sanctuary. On other occasions, the priests are set, ate part of the flesh, I'm sorry, of the sacrifice. Both services symbolize the transfer of sin from the animal into the sanctuary. On one day each year, a special event took place. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest entered the most holy place into the very presence of God and his law. The Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, was a day set aside to ensure complete harmony between God and humans, to atone means to restore at oneness with God. The purpose was to cleanse both the sanctuary and the sinner. The record of sin left by sacrificial blood had built up in the sanctuary throughout the year. On the Day of Atonement, these sins were symbolically blotted out 
and the sanctuary was cleansed of sin. This was a day of judgment. The people of Israel would afflict their souls by making sure there were no specific sins left unconfessed or unforsaken. On this day, those who refused to confess their sins were judged guilty and cut off from God's people. And beloved, I want to share with you that we are living right now in the antitypical day of atonement. And Jesus Christ is our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. Would you say amen? Question 17. How will the sanctuary, heavenly sanctuary be cleansed? Please notice Hebrews chapter 9 verse 23. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. It was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens, the earthly sanctuary, should be what? Purified, Purified with these, the blood of animals. But the heavenly things themselves, the heavenly sanctuary, with what, everybody? Better sacrifices than these, the precious blood of who? Of Jesus. The cleansing of the sanctuary referred to by Daniel does not involve an earthly sanctuary. The Jewish temple was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70 and has never been rebuilt. The events and symbols of the earthly sanctuary point to Jesus and the sanctuary in heaven. The cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary is the removal of the record of our sins from the books of heaven, Daniel 7:10. While sinners are forgiven, when they repent of their sins, even their very record of, even the very record of our sins is blotted out in God's judgment. 18. When will the sanctuary be cleansed? When will the sanctuary be cleansed? Daniel 8, 14, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be what? Cleansed. So we know that there's a starting date for when this judgment begins. All of you know this. The starting date of the prophecy was a command allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their city. Daniel 9, 25, which was issued in the year 457 B.C. Counting 2,300 years from 457 B.C., Brings us to the year, what year, everybody? 1844, the start of the cleansing of the sanctuary. In 1844, Jesus began the work of judgment in God's sanctuary in heaven. According to the Bible, we are now living in heaven's judgment hour. That's over there in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Again, when calculating this time prophecy, remember to add one year because there is no year zero. And then finally, question number 19. Revelation 14, it says, what impact should the judgment have on a person's life? Please notice. Revelation 14, verse 7. Fear God and give what? And give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment, what's the tense? Has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. So, beloved, I want to share with you that you, you notice that there are two things that, that are mentioned before the judgment hour. Because in light of the judgment hour and the fact that we're living in the judgment hour, how are we to live? Well, we're to live fearing God, and that doesn't mean to be afraid. It means basically reverence and to be in awe and to love God. There are other places in Scripture that speak about fearing God means also a turning away from sin and turning to God. Would you say amen? Giving glory to Him. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, we read it last night. Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. John chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, Jesus said that I have declared thy name and I have show, revealed your glory. Glory is synonymous with name, meaning God's character. Do you know that the greatest way in which we can bring glory to God is to allow the Holy Spirit to come in and reproduce his character in us so that we reflect him. That's how we bring honor and glory to God. And so in light of the judgment hour, God's people will fear him, 
they will, they will also bring glory to him, and then they will also worship him because he's the creator and redeemer. Would you say amen? And beloved, I want to share with you that he alone is worthy to receive honor and glory and worship. And so I just want to close with that tonight and say that we have absolutely nothing to fear of the judgment so long as we continue to, re- to accept the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ that God offers you and me. Would you say amen? How many of you want to just receive again tonight and say, Lord, I want to I accept that precious gift again right now in my life, the gift of salvation that you're offering through your son Jesus. Praise be to God. Father in heaven, Lord, you see all the hands that are raised. And Lord, we just want to thank you for sending Jesus who vindicated your honor and your glory. And now, Lord, through the Holy Spirit, wants to work in our lives both to will and to do of your good pleasure. And I pray, dear God, that you would help us to see that the judge, the judge is not against us. The judge is our friend. The judge loves us. And that we have absolutely nothing to fear of the judgment because Jesus, Jesus has already paid the penalty and the price for our sins. And if we accept him moment by moment, day by day, we will be safe to save. And so, Lord, we just want to raise our hands and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for being our Lord and our Savior, our Redeemer, our Creator. And we just want to thank you for loving us so much that you have revealed these things to us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us not to keep it to ourselves and hoard it, but to share it with others. Because there's so many people, Lord, out there who have a misconception of the judgment, a misconception of who you are, a misconception of your character. I pray, dear God, that as we open the word with others and as we, as we just work alongside others and as we live with others and as we meet others, that your character will come shining through. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.